Not everybody is an addict the way I was, but if you look at, you know, smartphones and social media, everybody's addicted to something, dude. Everybody's reaching for something that creates fantasy that allows them to escape their reality or allows them to like literally feel numb. And I think that for a lot of us, we just aren't taught how to deal with life on life's terms. Mm. Like you don't have to be an addict to get skipped on the life instructions, you know, uh, when they're handing that stuff out. So it's it's just, it's a different, I, I think, you know, I took a more extreme journey, but I think anybody right now that's like in a career, in a relationship or in a personal and professional situation that they're not happy about, they're looking to escape that feeling. They're, they're you know, we aren't taught how to deal with that stuff. That's Michael Brody Waite, and this is episode 216 of In the Moment with me, Alex Manzi. I'm a coach, and this podcast is all about conscious living and positive well being. And each week, we hear the stories and tips from some of the most inspirational people in the world to help inspire you to make a positive change in your life. On this week's episode, I am joined by Michael Brody Waite, who is a recovering addict and coach who wants to share his learnings as an addict with the world. He's worked with business leaders around the world and has a TED Talk, which has been viewed over 2 million times, which I would highly, highly recommend. And I love this conversation with Michael. I actually think, to be honest, this is one of the most powerful conversations I've had on the podcast. And one of the things that I really took from this episode was about halfway in, we start talking about the principles, the three principles that he he teaches people that he took from his, you know, or he takes from his recovery program. And there's a real big one on letting go and, and the difficulty in that and how letting go is really kind of tied into fear and how our fears are ultimately tied into being so worried about something that we actually think we're going to die. And it's it's a really interesting look on fear and what fear is, because ultimately when we fear something, the big fear is that we're going to die in some way, be it socially or physically or emotionally. And it's more than not, it's not true. So this idea of letting go is a really powerful one to me because we kind of learn a lot about ourselves in letting go and kind of surrendering to an outcome, surrendering to what is. And I think that's a really powerful message. During this conversation, we also spoke about how we're all addicted to something, being authentic and doing the uncomfortable work. But before we jump in, I'm really excited to announce that my book, The Search for Clarity, is now available as an audiobook. And after much going back and forth, the audio is now out and it's narrated completely by me. And the book shares my biggest learnings and lessons that have helped me to live a happy and fulfilling life and the tips that can help you to do the same as well. The audiobook is now available via Audible and physical copies can still be bought from my website at thedreamersdisease.co.uk forward slash clarity. The aim of this podcast is to inspire. So if you like what you hear in this episode, then be sure to share it with a friend and spread the love. But right now, let's jump straight in and hear from Michael. So hello, welcome, Michael. How are you? Uh, dude, doing well. I'm excited to be here, man. I'm really digging your LED lights. If you're listening <laughs> to this and you can't see it, I'm like obsessed. Yeah, we were just trading uh, information on the light, lighting situation. Um, to, to I was just saying how LED lights just make everything look like a super movie, a superhero movie or something like that. So I'm, I'm really happy with them. Yeah, I actually reference superheroes in my TED talk too. So like everything yeah. aligns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so true, so true, so funny. Um, so, so for anyone who's kind of listening and they haven't heard anything about you before, um, can you give a kind of very brief, in a nutshell, um, or as much detail as you want, um, kind of idea of like who you are and what you do? I guess. 
Yeah, man. So uh, I'll do like the normal intro I kind of do. So 18 years ago, my daily habit was to use alcohol and drugs from the minute I woke up to the minute I passed out at night. Um, all I wanted to do was to use and get high. And the only money I had was what I could steal from my friends. And I was kicked out of school. I was kicked out of college, like kicked out of my house, kicked out of my car, kicked out of my job. My liver enzymes were through the roof. I was throwing up blood at the age of 23. I thought I would die. And that's actually how I intro the TED Talk too, because that's the only way I know how to introduce myself. Mm. And so, you know, I go around the world telling people that I think that leaders should act like uh, drug addicts. And people go, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like, my title of my book is Great Leaders of Like Drug Addicts. And people are like, what? Um, and basically... You know, I know a lot about addiction, but I also know a lot about leadership in the last 18 years. My clean date is September 1st, 2002. And, you know, I spent eight years climbing the corporate ladder at a Fortune 50 company, um, left that in the height of the recession with no connections, investors, or anything else, and started a company and became the founder and CEO of a company called Inquicker that was an Inc. 500 company, sold that to a publicly traded company, then led us uh, a nonprofit that helped 2,000 entrepreneurs start or grow a business a year. And then did my TED Talk and then wrote a book. And now I've launched the Mastery Program, the Mastery Movement in the middle of a pandemic, which is weird. We'll talk about that <laughs> later. Um, and basically, like my whole gig is I believe that the principles that addicts use to recover can make anyone a professional superhero. Mm -hmm. And it really has to do with the idea of what I call living and leading mask-free, which prior to the pandemic and post-pandemic means most leaders, in fact, 90% of leaders hide their true self at work. And... We've been told, oh, just be authentic, just be authentic. Well, I've actually been able to tie how wearing that mask at work hurts business outcomes. And, and that's what my work's really about, how like this kind of personal help, authentic movement, how do you actually make it a business discipline to gain a competitive advantage? Um, and the way that I do that is I basically teach people um, everything that I learned going to meetings for the last 18 years. So for you know a couple thousand dollars an hour or whatever it is, I'll tell you what I learned uh, sitting in a free meeting, uh, drinking, drinking a terrible cup of coffee with a bunch of recovering addicts and felons. Um, that's kind of what I do. Yeah, nice, man. And that's, I just think like when... when you know, I was reading through your kind of bio and stuff and, and, you know, watch the Ted talk that you've done, which is amazing by the way. And, you know, it's had nearly, I think 2 million views or whatever, which just yeah. goes to show how, how powerful it is. It's, it's such a, it's such a interesting journey. Cause I think for a lot of people, you can, you can kind of relate to the stuff you learned, right. On your, your recovery journey, right. From, from where you were to where you are, you can relate to the principles that, you know, we'll go on to, to discuss shortly, I'm sure. But I'm really interested in rolling it back to where you were when you were an addict and what what created that shift for you. Because I think it's very hard for people to understand that place to be in your life, to to kind of be so, I guess, and correct, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but like reliant on a substance to, you know, whatever, make you feel good about yourself or whatever it was for you. Sure. So what 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 was that place in your in your life like and and kind of what was the shift that made you think I need to sort this out? That place was dark and hopeless. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, most people are affected by addiction, whether directly or indirectly. And so I think a lot of us can, you know, see an addict's story. But I think the thing that's really hard for people to relate to is that the fact that we keep doing the thing that hurts us over and over again, despite the negative consequences to ourselves and others. And so, 
for me, you know, I was, you know, living on a couch. It was the only thing, my buddy's couch. I was, it was the only thing he would meet from the street. He would go to uh, work, actually, well, school. I would rob from him when he went to school too. But then when he went to work, I would steal from him. I'd trash his place. I'd drink his alcohol. I'd eat his food. I'd invite people over, wreck his place, steal his, whatever he's got. And he loved me enough that he let me stay because he knew I had nowhere to go. But I basically was not comfortable in my own skin. I, I felt like when they passed out the instructions on how to deal with life on life's terms, I was skipped. Hmm. Uh, I just, I always felt inadequate. Um, I always felt scared that I, I wasn't enough or that I was doing something wrong. Um, I just, I lacked confidence. Uh, I lacked self-esteem. I didn't know how to take care of myself. And, you know, you go to school and they teach you all this stuff, but they don't teach you how to lead yourself. They don't teach you how to be comfortable in your own skin. And I didn't get those uh, skills growing up. I got a lot of great things growing up, but I didn't get those skills. And so when I went to college, I was, I was just overwhelmed. And, and I remember one night, my freshman year of college, um, going back to my room after having an emotional blow up over, like, I literally can't even remember what I was upset about. Like, it was nothing. And what upset me more than my friends being mad at me and me leaving was the fact that I had no idea what was going on inside. Mm-hmm. It's like, I just don't know what's going... Why am I having such a terrible reaction to this? And I go back to the dorm room and there's a fridge full of beer and I, and I drink that. And then a couple of days later, we're watching TV and, and there's a Lifetime movie about this guy that becomes an alcoholic and he loses his entire family, his job and everything. And when I was in high school, my parents sat me down and they said, look, your father's an alcoholic. You have the genetic predisposition. Don't drink or, or you, you know, use drugs. Well, here's a tip. If you think your kid might be an addict, don't tell him not to do something because that's what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I was watching this movie and I was like, man, that guy's life looks really simple. I know it looks terrible to most people, but he's not feeling anything. I just, I want that life. And that's when I decided that I want to become an alcoholic. That's when I decided that I want to become an addict. Um, it's kind of the stupidest thing. It's the first thing I ever applied my potential to. Wow. So, so that's interesting. So, so in a way, what I'm getting from that is that you, you almost chose to put yourself in that position. Is that right? Yeah, I think I probably would have ended up in that position no matter what. But I think I was so uncomfortable being my true self in this world. And I saw a model mm. for people that could disregard that. When you become an alcoholic and you use like you get fired from your job and your friend you lose your friends and your family, you've kind of surrendered all the things you're scared of, and then all that's left is the booze or all that's left is the high. And for me, that was something that actually seemed manageable, mm. and and that was something I thought I could actually figure out and learn how to execute. And so I wanted that, and I think my parents letting me know that I was wired that way it felt inevitable a little bit once I started doing it. I mean, it's, it's crazy to hear. And now I got kids. So like, I don't want them thinking that way, of course, but yeah, yeah I, 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 unlike most addicts, I like, I turned towards it and I said, dude, I want this. Wow. I didn't know what I was signing up for, but uh, it seemed better than what I, than, than trying to feel really uncomfortable being myself in this world. Yeah. So it's like an escape from reality, isn't it? It's like, it, it's that, and, and, you know, for me, you know, a lot of my journey was like, I, I was very depressed when I was in my early 20s, mid, uh, early to mid 20s. And a lot of it was, again, trying to s- escape the reality that I was living or like living, living a reality that I didn't want for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you kind of push yourself into this corner of like darkness and, 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 
and just being super like like beating yourself up like you you know you're beating yourself up but you in a weird way you quite enjoy doing it so you continue to do it and it's like you you go on this loop of just continual like you know putting yourself down or or you you sort of chase that as as a high in a way you know it's the only way yeah. i can kind of relate to it and it's it's when you when you look at it that way you're like well that's crazy that we do that like why 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 is our mind wired to think that like this stuff that ultimately we know is not good for us is better than what you know we're already experiencing i i think it's just a lot of us don't know what to do instead mm-hmm. like we we don't know i mean you know not everybody is an addict the way i was but if you look at you know smartphones and social yeah. media everybody's addicted to something dude everybody's reaching for something that creates fantasy that allows them to escape their reality or allows them to like literally feel numb and i think that for a lot of us we just aren't taught how to deal with life on life's terms mm. Like you don't have to be an addict to get skipped on the life instructions, you know, uh, when they're handing that stuff out, (laughs) you know what I mean? So it's, it's just, it's a different, I I think, you know, I took a more extreme journey, but I think anybody right now that's like in a career in a relationship or in a personal and professional situation that they're not happy about, they're looking to escape that feeling. They're, Mm -hmm. They're, you know, we aren't taught how to deal with that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it it comes back to something that you mentioned earlier about, you know, wearing a mask. Right. And it's like, even if you're in that place and it, this was a lot for me as well, it's like in that place of not being happy and be it relationship or work or, you know, whatever it may be, but you put on the mask of like, well, look at me, I am happy in this. And, and for some people that could be posting pictures of them looking happy on social media or like doing things that they seem to be enjoying on social media or, or turning up, at um a, a date with with another couple or something and looking like the relationship is really great and rosy and everything's really well when behind the scenes it's like falling apart and it's like that mask wearing that we all do is is it's fascinating stuff like why we do it and and <laughs> and for how long we do it for as well and why we choose to do it you know when i was uh well before social media and the internet and all that kind of stuff uh so like 2002 when i went to rehab um, well before a pandemic and before I built the mastery program, before all this other crap, um, they, they gave me two different masks. Uh, they gave me two different masks and they were blank and they were paper. And then they gave me a bunch of magazines and they said, cut out images and words on the first mask that look like the person you want everybody to see you as. Mm. And then cut out images and words of what you actually are scared that they will see and who you think wow. you really are. And so I still have those masks somewhere in my like in my keepsake boxes and stuff and I look at them every once in a while. And and so to me the really cool thing if like if we go to you know where when I get clean and stuff is to me the only segment of society personally or professionally that are rigorously trained to learn how to become their true self are recovering addicts because yeah. If we keep the mask on, we die. Hmm. Like, like you know, for the person that's trapped in a career or relationship or something like that that they're not happy with, they 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 suffer, 
And sometimes there are extreme cases where people do extreme things and they really hurt, but they're not necessarily, you know, getting arrested on every Saturday night and getting thrown in jail for being in a bad relationship. Although if, Hey, if we had those consequences, maybe we would be in less bad relationships, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm not that kind of guy, but you know, addicts have very extreme consequences, but I don't think we're, I don't think it's stemming from feeling materially different. It's just addicts my, my personal belief about drug addiction and, and just addiction in general is we have a variant of obsessive compulsive disorder where we are obsessed with being able to predict and control how we feel. Mm-hmm. And that is why we will choose a negative feeling by using a drug that gets us into trouble or whatever over the variable of just showing up for life on life's terms, because at least we can predict that feeling. Yeah. And so I think that, you know, in general, we are very extreme in how we manage that and how we react to it. But I think it's indicative of, of, a, of a larger issue. And so if you like, so I, I deal with a lot of business leaders, business leaders and addicts are actually acting very similarly. So when I was out there and I was using drugs and, and, and trying to fund my habit, I would say yes to drugs when I should say no. I hid my weakness of being an addict. I avoided every single difficult conversation that would lead me back to an intervention. And I held back the unique perspective that I had to bring to this world because I was high all the time. Yeah. For me, that was killing me. But leaders in this world, I've, I've assessed not 90% of leaders are saying yes to what they could say no to at work. It costs them 31 hours on average a month in meetings that are unnecessary. Um, leaders hide their weaknesses. When was the last time you heard a politician answer a question with, I don't know. But yet when we share our weaknesses, we grow with your business and what I do. We know that. Um, of people are avoiding a difficult conversation with their boss, a coworker, or a direct report Mm -hmm. right now. And that's actually leading to millions of dollars that are lost by companies every single year. And holding back your unique perspective, there's so much stuff on Instagram and Facebook, just be you, just be you. But the truth is, is that we're scared when the boss's boss is in the room or the customer doesn't like what we're going to say to share our unique perspective in the professional world. And so like, I'm obsessed with taking this stuff that I learned in 12-step meetings and, and how I integrated it into the building of my companies and stuff and applying it to the professional world because the personal development is something that's okay, valued, acknowledged, and used. Mm. And we say, be your authentic self you know, in personal life. But professionally, we aren't taught how to lead ourselves. We're taught how to follow others. And, and really, it's like we're coming out of this era of what's called command and control leadership, which is literally you put on a mask to go to battle. That's yeah. like, that's the leadership paradigm everybody's trained in. Well, get, guess what? Where do you spend more time? Do you spend more time on a personal development coaching session or do you spend more time at work? You spend more time at work. So guess which dog gets fed? Guess mm-hmm. where you wire your muscle memory. The more you put on the mask at work, the more you're going to predetermine an inauthentic life. And so my obsession is, is that at my company, we did this. If you can create what we call a mask-free culture inside of a company, inside of a team, or inside of a human you literally can change a world, multiple worlds. Um, and if you want to get like jiggy with the quantification, <laughs> 500 hours a year is on average what a leader wastes saying yes to things they could say no to, hiding a weakness, avoiding difficult conversations, holding back the unique perspective. And time is the number one resource inside of every single company. So everybody's wasting 500 hours a year. And it's the number one resource inside uh, companies now that we're in an information economy. And literally nobody's doing anything about it. 
Mm. Like they, they, they give you a seminar and like, Hey, say no, or Hey, have a crucial conversation. But you know what? Drug addicts got the, got the don't use drugs literature too. It didn't stop us. <laughs> like you got to address the fact that we're addicted to this stuff. And so I think it's just a unique time where I think like, you know, they say it's, uh, it's always darkest before the dawn. I think that we are living in a dramatically more in an authentic world, but I think it's illustrating a thirst for authenticity. And I think that the addicts are here to save the day. Yeah, I hope, I hope so, man. And, and and it reminds me of something you said in your TED Talk where you said um, 60% of adults can't go 10 minutes without telling a lie. And I think that really just sums up the inauthentic way that everyone's kind of living their life. And and it's just, it's crazy to me because, you know, we, we were talking, you know, before we hit record about that, you know, you know, free what you do and for what I do. I'm trying, I'm trying to bring as much authenticity that's possible. And, you know, it's not always going to be a hundred percent. You're still going to hold on to yeah, certain totally. things. Me too. But I think the, the process of it is really freeing. And, and one of the things that I, I've gathered from, you know, what I've read and heard about the 12 step recovery process for addicts is there's a big part of it. I can't remember. You, you, you obviously know more than I will, but there's, there's one step in particular, which is more about letting go than anything else. And just when you let go and, and you surrender to, to what is, you lose so many of your fears and worries and expectations of things because you're like, well, I'm not in control of it anyway. Like I yeah. can just be me and it's still going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, so step three, I mean, like the whole thing is, is that, but step three is really, and when I stared at step three, I was like, hell no, I'm not turning on my will. <laughs> like I'm not, I'm not surrendering to something called a higher power, like screw that. And then someone's like, your best thinking got you here. I'm like, good point. I'm in, I'm in rehab. So maybe I'm not doing such a great job leading myself, but I think, you know, we've got, um, I teach a lot of, uh, a lot of different professionals from all over the world, uh, that makes it sound like there's a lot of people. It's not a ton of people. I don't want to, I don't want to misrepresent yeah. myself, but they are from all over. And I teach them the three principles in my TED talk and in my book. And, and one of the things that we talk about is just like, we can get into just like I did all these like practical applications of living mask free. But in reality, a lot of people, they come do this work with it because they just want to be free of fear. Mm. like they just want to be able to let the fear go. And I feel like if you kind of pull back the covers on a lot of the stuff out there, that's, you know, going to help people at the end of the day, it's trying to help people with the fear. Mm. And there's, a, and I'm not going to say 12 step is, is the, is the only way or that the mastery program that I'm building for everybody is, is the only way there's a lot of really great paths to getting there. But I think, I think the most powerful thing in learning how to get out of fear is to understand that you will never get out of fear. Mm. <laughs> like that's never going to happen. So how do you, how do you surrender it anyway? How do you accept anyway? Um, and that's like, to me, this illusion that we can get out of fear, this illusion that we can be perfect, this illusion that we can have it all, this like all these illusions are, are not really real. So that's why authenticity is so important. You have to understand who you are. You have to understand what you truly want. You have to understand how much you're hiding yourself to the world. And I have an, I have an authenticity assessment. And when people come into my program, their scores go down, <laughs> not up. Yeah. Because they start to realize they're wearing masks all the time mm. and they don't even know it. And so they start to become aware and they go, dude, I'm being inauthentic everywhere. <laughs> and I do too. I still do it, man. Yeah. I was doing a social media video with my wife the other day, like not it's actually longer now. And she's like, you're not being authentic. I'm like, what? I believe <laughs> what I'm saying. And she's like, when Michael Brody Waite is talking to a crowd, he's performing. I've seen you. 
coach one person and your entire goal is to change their life, but the way you talk to them is different than when you're trying to perform for a crowd. I'm shooting this video and I'm seeing the guy that's performing for the crowd. Mm. I was like, shit, man. Like, cause in, in, in addiction recovery, we're taught you can't spot self-deception. And that's why you need a sponsor. That's why you never graduate. That's why you have to continue to work the steps. That's why my wife was like, why do you still go to meetings? I'm like, cause I don't want to relapse. Yeah. I still go to meetings to this day. Um, and I think a lot of it's, you know, we, we don't know when we're being inauthentic. We need people watching our back that are committed to rigorous authenticity, not just check the box authenticity, but rigorous authenticity that are going to hold us accountable and, and give us their perspective. And then collectively, we can start to take these masks off together. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think the accountability is so big, isn't it? And, you know, again, it's testament to the to the recovery 12-step programs because it's like you're, you're being put in a position where you're being accountable to yourself with other people involved as well, a sponsor, the people in the group, you know, the, um, the person who hosts the group. And it's like having that accountability to being authentic and having that person, like what your wife did in, in that story there to remind you of the times when you're not helps you become more aware of it. And I think sometimes we forget that when you have people who can prod you sometimes and remind you, it just, all it does is just widen your, your blinkers a little bit more. And every yep. time you widen those blinkers, you're becoming more aware of who you're being and how you're showing up. And a lot of my work with clients is about trying to help them see who they are being when they're showing up in their life, in every area, relationships, work, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, when you have that awareness of that, you're being as authentic as you can be because you're aware of, okay, I'm being me. I'm being, you know, this is, I'm, I'm performing here. I'm, you know, being, a, I'm holding back here or, you know, you, you start to build the picture up for yourself. And I think it's, it's really fascinating. And, and if, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to kind of talk through those three principles that you kind of yeah. you know, have in the book and, we're, we're, you know, a big part of the TED talk and what they are and whether you want to kind of do an overview of them or break them down one by one. Like I'm totally open to either way, man. It's, I'd love to dive in on them. Yeah, dude. So, um, I don't like talking about them at all. <laughs> That's all I talk about. <clears throat> yeah. I love these principles. So here's the deal. Like, so if you're listening, you've read a book on how to say no, you know that you need to be vulnerable. I'm a Brene Brown fan too, right? You've read a book called Crucial Conversations. You're like, oh, I'm going to have difficult conversations. Or you watched, you know, Jay Shetty on Instagram say, just be your best self. And so we consume all this stuff, all this inspiration, all this what and why, but no one usually gives us the how. Mm. And so when I walked into rehab, when I walked into the Betty Ford Center, September 1st, 2002, or actually August 31st, 2002, they didn't say stop using drugs. My entire family had been telling me to stop using, right? The law was telling me to stop using. Yeah. My, the constant, my liver was telling me to stop <laughs> using. My doctor was telling me to stop using. Anyone that has an addict in their life knows you can tell an addict to stop using until, they are, until you are blue in the face and nothing's going to change. Recovery only starts when you, instead of focusing on what you need to stop, someone tells you what to start instead. And so for me, the 12-step program over my 18 years of practicing it personally and also practicing it in my different businesses, at the end of the day, taught me three principles that are the how. 
Okay. So the first principle, and they go together as a system. They're not just three principles that you put up on a wall. You go, oh, that's inspirational. And then you do the same shit. It's literally designed to change your behavior. And so yeah. the first principle- so, so it's Just to cut in, yeah. are, they, are they three principles that you were taught or are these principles that you've taken from what you learned? You are a smart man. And a lot of people don't dive into that. Um, so these are not specifically 12-step program principles. At the same time, anyone in a 12-step program will say, yeah, we do that. Yeah, This is my interpretation of what it means to live these principles in your professional and personal life, regardless of whether you're an addict in recovery or not. Yeah. And I love that because it's more lived experience rather than just repeating what you've already been taught. It's like, actually, this is what I learned this. This is what I did. And this is what I can tell you has worked for me. Actually, you know what, just real quick before I go into the principles, because, because you appreciate that. So Bill Wilson is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. and the originator of the 12 steps with, with other people. And, and that's actually not the fellowship that I attend, but I, I know some of its history. And, um, and so what, one of the things that they did was they actually took uh, a set of principles that w- they were taught in a group called the Oxford group that was a religious group. Mm. And what they did was they stripped the religion out. Like a lot of people think 12 step is you know, religion. It's like they said your higher power could be a doorknob. If there's a religion called doorknob, like I, I am not a part of it, but like, so, so they, they stripped religion out to make this accessible to any addict, regardless of what their belief in a higher power is. Mm. So what I did was I then stripped out of the 12 steps Everything that makes you need to be an addict, like an, a traditional drug or alcoholic. And I wanted to make it accessible to everybody because most of the people that I've led or that I've lived with or whatever have been like, man, I want to come to 12-step meetings. I'm like, dude, come. Like, And they'll be like, that was really helpful. And Brene Brown herself, one of my idols and gifts of imperfection said, I wish there was a 12-step light program for everybody else. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. So instead, awesome. 12 steps that are really like super intense... I made it these three principles when I observed what I did on a daily basis. It was these three principles. Mm. So the first one is practice rigorous authenticity. Now, authenticity is a buzzy ass word. Okay. (laughs) So I'm not talking about like, you know, check the box authenticity. I'm not talking about curated authenticity. I'm not talking, you know, anybody can keep it real in front of grandma. Like that's great. Or, or if you're in a job interview, people are going to point to that one moment that they know checks the box on them being a vulnerable human. But I'm talking about rigorous authenticity. The word rigorous is there because it means no matter what, no matter what the stakes are, high or low, practice rigorous authenticity. That's what that principle is about. And when you commit your life to that, you will realize how different you have to live in order to live that principle. It's insanely hard. The entire world is tilted against it. And that's also why I put the word practice because I never do it all the time. Mm. Like nobody's ever going to do it all the time. So that's why we have practice rigorous authenticity. And in practice, no pun intended, (laughs) when we're teaching people our program, what we really do is we have them go through our mask assessment, identify the mask that's holding them back each month. And then essentially say, well, if you were going to be true to yourself in word and action, what would that be? So like for me last month, it was actually what I charged to speak and to coach. I was holding back my unique perspective. I thought people would didn't think what I was doing was valuable. And so that was the mask that I worked on last month. And it really helped. I, I, I 
charge $32,000 more than I would have in an right. aggregate in all my proposals um, simply out of fear. So practicing rigorous authenticity is getting rear arms around what's the mask that's holding me back. The problem is that if you stop there, it's just an idea. And then when push comes to shove and you're in the situation, you're not going to do it. So the second one, the second principle is the key, surrender the outcome. This is where we attack that fear that we were talking about. Leaders are taught to obsess over outcomes, that they're, they're, they're accountable for outcomes, right? How many times have we seen someone obsessing over something they can't control at the expense of the things that they can because they're like, I'm responsible for this. And yet addicts are taught, you got to let go of the outcome. You got to let go of the outcome. And then, and then we're actually told that if we don't do it, we'll die. So like we take it more seriously than the average business leader, right? And so surrendering the outcome is the act of giving up your attachment to the result of how something's going to go not because you don't want to be successful, mm. but because you want to stop wasting so much energy focusing on things that you can't control and double down on what you can. And most people do not surrender. 50% of our energy is spent focusing on things that we can't control. In the US, we just had this whole thing around an election. Every time we were checking CNN.com, we weren't affecting the fucking vote. <laughs> like we weren't actually impacting what we could control. We just thought we, by knowing what was going on, we could control things, and that's bullshit. So we waste so much energy, or in practical terms, in the business world, a salesperson that's arguing about their quota is wasting energy on things they can't control. The salesperson making the calls is focusing on what they can't control. So Principle one, you get clarity. What's the mask I'm wearing? Principle two, surrender the outcome. Reclaim 50% of your energy. When you get clarity and you get more energy, you do more uncomfortable work than the person next to you. Mm -hmm. Now, what I also, when I'm talking to people, they'll say, okay, uncomfortable work. We know how to do that one, Michael. We know how to do that one. We're, we're professionals. I'd be like, no, you don't. You know how to do smart work and hard work. It's physical and intellectual. Uncomfortable work is emotional. It's literally a feeling in your body that makes you not do the thing that you know is good for you. We all know how hard it is to do uncomfortable work unless everybody that's listening eats healthy every single meal, works out every single day, saves money, more money than they spend, and stays off their smartphone when they're around their kids. Like, no, this is uncomfortable work or a difficult conversation at work. So uncomfortable work is something that magically happens when you work those first two principles. And so what we do is we focus on, okay, so what's my uncomfortable work when I'm tackling this mask? And so like last month, holding back my unique perspective, my uncomfortable work, I've actually got my action card right here. <laughs> and it was four moments. I had to collect four moments over the course of the month where quoting our full price would give me butterflies in my stomach. Hmm. And that's yeah. what led to $32,000 more in quotes. And so like, I have to practice this program too, because I'm never going to recover. But if you can take these three principles, if you can identify your mask by practicing rigorous authenticity in all moments, if you can learn how to surrender the outcome and reclaim a tremendous amount of energy from all that fear, you will do more uncomfortable work and that will help you grow and help everybody around you grow. Yeah. And I love them and, I, and there's so much power in them. And I think that the, the way you've simplified them as well down to three things is really it makes it really digestible. But like you said, they're, they're kind of intertwined. Like you can't, you can't just do, you know, authenticity and surrendering without the uncomfortable work. And you can't do the uncomfortable work and the authenticity without. Exactly. The, so it's like, they're so intertwined that it, it, it's like a, it's like a dynamic that's at play. And I think that's wicked. And, and, and what I love is the, the surrendering and letting go is I think really powerful because that, arguably i think the hardest bit um because it is we we are wired to think 
about outcomes all the time, right? We're just wired yep. that way. We can't stop. And it's like when you actually surrender to, and I'm, I'm going to speak from like a, a personal perspective in terms of like everyday life and not, not just workplace or whatever, but when you, when you surrender to and accept, which is a, a word I use a lot, like learning to accept who you are, how you feel, what you're going through, you know, and you, we're kind of seeing it a bit now. Like there's so many people who are saying like, oh, like, oh, when the world gets back to normal. But it's like the, the more you continue to think about when the world gets back to normal or how it was, the more you're going to be unhappy with how you're living now. So if you can accept that this is now the normal, your life is going to become in, in inverted commas normal again because you're like well i'm i'm happy with this because i'm surrendering to what i'm experiencing and i think this is is such a powerful thing and it's like i think we undervalue it because we want something from every not every but like most situations and most things in life we were never just like let's just go with the flow and 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 just right. enjoy that well if you think about it like so we're, you know, humans are known as a, what's called an apex predator, right? Where there's nobody that hunts us. Mm. Um, we're the top of the food chain. But if you look at like the next like 20 animals below us, one-on-one, they would kick our ass. Yeah. Like I cannot beat a mountain lion. It is going to rip me to shreds. So we're actually really feeble and weak. The mo- Arnold Schwarzenegger is nothing compared to a lion, right? Mm. So, although I would pay to see that. <laughs> so what what makes us successful is our ability to think ahead and coordinate uses of re- use of resources and all these types of things. And so a lot of times, so I just recently had an experience where someone that's very dear to me, we had um, a, a situation where we don't agree and we're kind mm. of upset at each other. And we're not even fully talking right now. And I called my buddy, um, Toby, who's like one of my best friends in recovery. And I was like, man, this thing's really eating my lunch. And he's like, yeah, that thing sucks, but that's not what's hurting you. It's the fact that your mind is obsessing over the things that you could say, the things that could happen, the things that would do, you would do, or the, what this means or whatever. Like, actually, right now, everything is fine. And it was, I mean, I think all of us have those moments. Mm. But I think the thing that I try to teach people is, is that I teach them two things. One thing that's really simple and one thing that's a little bit more complex. The first thing I teach them is the simplest tool in the world that is most likely to give you the most freedom is if you take out a piece of paper and you write can't control in the top left, can control in the top right, and you draw a line down the middle, whatever is eating your lunch, start writing three things that you can't control, write three things that you can control, literally physically write it, engage your entire brain in the exercise, and then actually cross out the three things that you can't control Mm -hmm. and physically circle the three things that you can control. And what will happen is your brain will detach from the outcome and you will now suddenly be hyper-focused on what you can control and you will actually be able to release it. And one of the reasons that's so important, and that's an exercise that we do all the time, it's simple to teach, hard to live. I still forget it all the time, is we also teach this thing called the fear factor. It's not like Joe Rogan here in the States uh, eating beetles or whatever. Yeah. Um, what it is is saying every time you're scared. So I was scared in this, this argument that I have with this friend. Every fear comes down to the fear of death. Hmm. And it comes down to fear of physical death or social death. Those are the two things I need to survive. And so the problem is, is that because my brain can think ahead, 
When I think I'm upset about a disagreement with a friend, I'm actually scared I'm going to fucking die. I'm scared the lion is going to eat me. And it comes back to either I need them in order to be able to physically survive or I need to be part of a community in order to have meaning and I'm going to die a social death. And so the reason that we end up prioritizing things where everybody's had that moment, they're like, I know I'm worrying about that, but it's silly. The reason we can't let go is that at the in our consciousness, we're saying it's a silly argument. Deep down somewhere, it's saying you're going to fucking die. Yeah. And that's why we did we we prioritize this. That's why we have doomsday preppers buying like you know so many cans of food. I mean, I even bought a barrel for water. I was so inspired by these people. But like we're constantly looking for ways to mitigate a future moment where we might die. Because again, we're very feeble in terms of our physical capabilities and it really turns on us and it robs us of a tremendous amount of joy. And if we can see that we can't control most of the things and remind ourselves of that, and if we can remind, and if we can get down to our fear factor and realize, okay, I'm scared that my boss doesn't like me. What I'm really scared of is that they'll give me a bad review, that I'll get fired, that I won't have a paycheck. I won't pay the mortgage. I'll get kicked out of my house. My wife will leave me. I'll be on the street and then I'll fucking die. If I can actually recognize that that's what I'm worried about, I suddenly reclaim a lot of power yeah yeah it's funny isn't it and it's like i always always find it quite hilarious how much we think that we do control in our lives when we actually (laughs) don't (laughs) no dude like we're we all think we're the wizard of oz and and the reality is no one's at the movie theater yeah (laughs) it's like i I was having this conversation with with a, a client the other day and you know without going into too much detail for obvious reasons um she was saying that she she she'd had a a breakup basically right and and what happened was is because of the breakup obviously the ex-partner was now acting in certain ways and the conversation i was having with my client was like well how how is her actions a reflection of you right now she's like well because because i caused you know with the you know i was one who wanted to break up blah blah blah. like i've caused the actions like no you, you haven't like what you have to see is like that event is neutral and it's her reaction to that that is causing her actions now. It's not a reflection on, on you or your actions at all because it's a neutral thing. And it's like, we think as humans, like any event that occurs, we get a feeling from it, right? And that's either a good feeling or a bad feeling. And we think that the two are linked. We think that the, the event causes the feeling, but there's no connection between the event and the feeling at all. The only thing that creates the feeling is the thinking that we do. Around the event. Exactly. Exactly. Like when you understand that, you understand actually, like anything that happens out there is is not in our control. It's not in our control. So any feeling that we have around it, we're creating ourselves. And it's like, don't get me wrong, to a certain degree, we don't even control our thinking, but it's like you can control your reaction to the thoughts that create the feeling Like when you have that feeling, it's like, you know, I'm probably somewhere in, in, in the program. It's like, you know, you, you're, you're taught in a way to fight against the feeling of wanting to, um, uh, I can't think of Yeah. Wanting to reuse. And it's like, but you have to, you have to learn. It's it's not the feeling that you're fighting. It's your reaction to the feeling because your reaction is, I guess, well, I'm going to go and do it because it's going to make me feel X, Y, and Z, or it can be like, actually, do I really want to do that? And it's like, it's a different thing to, to, to the actual action, the, the, the feeling itself. That, so everything you said is exactly spot on. And I think that that's one of the reasons that, um, I wanted to find a way to make 
everything I learned in 12 step, uh, something that was accessible to everybody, because mm. to me, it's, it's the greatest behavior modification system, the thinking reacting reaction system in the world. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think of this story where when I first got out of rehab or out of the halfway house, uh, the, the guy that, you know, was at the, at the halfway or sorry, when I got out of rehab, I went to the halfway house. That's right. And, and I dropped out my bags and I'm like, Hey man, so like, what do we do for food? Cause I didn't, I honestly didn't even know the setup. He's like, you go to the grocery store and you get it. I'm like, okay, cool. And I go to the grocery store and I thought you probably thought I was going to tell a story from the Ted talk. Nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I go to the grocery store and, and I, and I'm, and I'm in the cereal aisle. Yeah. Harmless. Not a big problem, but I'm in the cereal aisle and I'm terrified that if I pick the wrong cereal, I'm going to relapse. Wow. Um, why? Because I don't know what's going to make me relapse. Mm. And so I'm worried that like, I literally think a drug or a drink is going to like jump me in an alley and force itself inside of me. I don't know mm. what I'm going to do because most addicts relapse. So I'm like, if I make the wrong decision on these cornflakes, dude, I'm screwed. Mm. And, and, and so like, that was one thing. So then, you know, the grocery store became this like place where I would learn because it'd be a place where I could see how my thinking would evolve and change. So then later on, I realized, okay, if I work my program, I won't relapse. Like a lot, you know, people are like, oh, most addicts relapse. Like, well, it's not the programs don't work. It's just there's a 90% chance that addicts won't follow the fucking directions. Like, it's just that simple. <laughs> yeah. If they do, they stay clean. So I go to the grocery store. Maybe I've got a year clean now. And I go down an aisle and, you know, I'm, I don't know what I'm, I'm getting, like grape soda or something like that. And then there's the beer aisle. And I'm going by the beer and the alcohol. And I'm like, oh, I want some of that. And I start thinking about like when I would drink and what my favorite brand is. And then I'm like, oh, dude, whoa, I got to get out of here. And then the entire time I'm around, going around the grocery store, I'm thinking about and fighting this urge and desire to drink. And I just keep thinking about, oh, it was so much fun. Oh, I can't. Oh, blah, blah. Oh, what does this mean? Oh, my God. Am I going to relapse? Like, what does this mean? Blah, blah, all this stuff. And like, I just got completely hijacked and so scared. And so there were, so then I would like avoid that aisle altogether. Mm -hmm. And then finally, my sponsor said, uh, taught me something. He said, you know, did, do you think that you had a desire to use? Because one of the things I was promised was I would lose my desire to use. And I said, yes, I wanted the beer. He's like, no. Do you, did you want to use it and throw everything that you have away? And I was like, no. He's like, okay. So what you had was a using thought. Hmm. It's a reflex. You will have that till the day you die because you are an addict. There is not recovered. There's only recovery. Mm. A desire to use is your ability to walk through it anyway. Dude, that insight gave me so much freedom because one of the things about what you were talking about in terms of things happen and then the way that we think and perceive affects how we feel, well, that becomes either an exponential spiral or, or an uh, I don't even know what the opposite is, but a, a minimizing spiral. Because what happens is we have a thought, we have a feeling, and then that feeling creates another thought. And mm. that thought creates another feeling. And so yeah. that's how we get spun up, spun up, spun up. And then if you ever had that moment where you're pissed off at someone, you keep thinking about what you're going to say to them and you find yourself more and more pissed off. That's what's happening. Opposite happens when you're meditating or you're doing something spiritual or whatever, you're able to detach and all of a sudden you're able to get quieter, 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 more peaceful. And so for me, like, it's literally just learning how to see the world differently. The question is, I think anybody listening right now is like, oh, yeah, I just have to think differently. Well, how the F do you actually do that? 
Yeah. Like, that's great. But how do you do that? And I bet what you teach, what I teach, what 12 step teaches, it's not in the hilltop moment. It's not in the workshop. It's not during the retreat. It's literally what do you do on a daily basis that becomes muscle memory? So mm. like I've been to over 2000 12 step meetings. They lost their novelty at about number 10. <laughs> Most people will not continue to take action that reprograms themselves past the point of novelty. That's why you get fad diets. That's why you get fad working out, whatever. But a drug addict has a little bit more incentive because I walk around with the equivalent of a 12 gauge shotgun pointed at my head. If I don't do this stuff, I went to my home group last night. If I don't number, you know, whatever, 2,102, I don't know what it is, (laughs) but if I didn't go, there's a good chance that I start not going more. And then all of a sudden my thinking's different and I start looking at drugs and alcohol differently and all that kind of stuff. And I think I'm pretty far away from relapse with 18 years, but I could get a pretty shitty attitude with my kids and wife pretty soon. You know, that could happen really quickly. And so I think, you know, there's so much that we, we glamorize in these like aha moments or recovery really gave me an appreciation of is the same reason why I don't know how much you follow uh, American basketball and NBA, Not really, but- but there's this guy named Steph Curry, mm-hmm. and he's on, he's on my favorite team, and he just set the the record in the history of the basketball for three pointers in a season the last couple seasons. And I know how to shoot a three pointer just like he does. I've watched the YouTube videos, <laughs> but I hit like one out of ten max, and he hits like nine out of ten because he does two thousand practice shots a day. The glorious moment is when you make it in the big game. The less than glorious moment is in the practice. What you and I do is we teach people how to do the practice so that when they have those moments in their life, whether they're big or small, they feel big or small, they're able to show up because it's not about what you know. We're no longer in a world where knowledge is power. Action is power. Mm -hmm. And the best way to prioritize action is to train yourself to react as opposed to just choosing your train your way to react the same way I can now walk by the beer aisle and, I, and my brain goes, oh, I want that. Oh, that must mean that you want to relapse. And, and now my reaction, automatic reaction that I've trained myself with is silly disease. And I just laugh and I just stay there. It has no power over me. Yeah, that's it. And I think that there in, in, in what you're saying about the beer aisle, it's like knowing that no thought is a bad thought, but we can make it a bad thought by, Absolutely. by the way we react to it, right? Yes. And, and that's, I think that's, that's, to me, that's super fascinating. I think that's been one of the biggest learnings on my journey. And one of the things I always say is like, you know, we, we want to push away the bad thoughts, the bad feelings, but it's like, we have the the whole spectrum of feelings to fill. <laughs> so it's like, yes. they're there for us to fill for a reason because they act like a bit of a compass and a guide for us. It's like, if you have that thought about beer or drugs, it's like, it's warning you of like, what could be you know, then it's like your reaction to that can either be huh, stupid disease, like you said, or you can start to panic like, oh my God, I'm going to relapse, which then is going to send you on that, that thought feeling spiral that you mentioned earlier. And it's like, when you understand that and, and, and like you said, not just understand it, but live it, experience it, practice it, recognize it when it happens, accept it when it happens, it allows you to grow off the back of it. And that's, that's the super powerful part. Yeah. Uh, I remember my first sponsor, uh, I was going through, I think, uh, the loss, I think, uh, someone died, uh, that I was close to early in recovery. And I remember him saying, uh, the depth to which you can feel pain is equivalent to the depth to which you can feel joy. Mm. And that sounded, I was like, that's great. You suck. Cause <laughs> I wanted to feel bad, but 
that stuck with me. And I realized how much of my life I'm not able to fully experience joy or able to fully experience pain. And, and I started thinking about that. And now, like, you know, the last chapter of my book is, uh, is, is like the worst, one of the worst years of my recovery, uh, in 2014, it's called tale of two divorces. And it's when I had to divorce my wife, uh, my business partner and sell the business that I loved. And I remember going through that, that year and going through all this pain. And I actually was able at times to go, Oh, I'm just paying the price for the ability to feel joy in the future. Mm. And, and that was so helpful. Like it, it, it just, it, it kind of cut out that downward spiral a little bit and like, okay, it's normal. If you're divorcing your business partner and your wife and you're having to give up your baby in a business all in the same year, like, yeah, that's a tough, like you, you got to feel some, sh- like you're going to feel bad. Mm. That's, that's going to happen. But if I try to avoid it, I'm not going to be able to experience the joy on the other side. And here I am with, uh, you know, obviously I was supposed to sell that business. I didn't know it at the time, but now I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm even more squarely in my purpose. I'm married again to who I know is my life partner. We have two wonderful children and life is not perfect, but it's so much better than it was in 2014. And I just mm-hmm. couldn't see it coming. But uh, the way I got out of that, and I say it in the book, is I ended up, I, I, I did what I call a mask relapse. And that's what got me into that mess. I didn't relapse on drugs, but I relapsed on, on masks. Um, but I practiced rigorous authenticity, surrendered the outcome, do, did uncomfortable work, and I got out of it. And I asked for help, and people helped me get out of it. And, you know, I think everybody's got those, you know, peaks and valleys. And the question is that, are you able to discern what are the practical tools that you need to learn to do on a daily basis to be able to optimize your peaks and optimize your valleys? Mm. And that's like, that's what I'm trying to give the world with these three principles. Yeah, I love that, man. I love that. And I, I got one final question for you, which yeah. I kind of ask everyone who comes on the podcast, but I think that your answer could be really interesting. So I'm, I'm interested to hear it. No pressure, but I'm interested I know, to seriously. hear it. <laughs> Watch, my mask is growing back. It's like, okay, you got to look good, dude. Yeah, no, no. It's just, it's, it's a simple question. It's what, what does happiness mean to you? <sighs> I'd imagine you got some great answers to this. Um, I think practically speaking, I hate, I hate that this is my practical answer, but it's (laughs) the absence of pain for me, the absence of suffering. Um, at the same time, a lot of times when I use the word happy, I can think of the word joy and joy when I think of that word, I think of the moments where I'm able to be present with my daughter or my wife or the people that matter most in my life. Or when I see, you know, the coaching that I'm doing have an impact on someone. And it's not just like, Oh, that'd be a great social media clip, but like actually their life is better. Mm. Um, Those moments or my sponsees, it doesn't have to be the coaching stuff. Those moments are really, really fulfilling, but I'm not sure I know I will say this as an addict, I've chased happiness in my entire life. And, you know, after I sold my company, I shot a video of myself and I hate sharing this because I don't ever like to talk about positive things where mm-hmm. I got to buy my dream house. Yeah. And I shot the video of myself in my dream house. And I was like, just remember what you've learned a year from now. This won't make a difference in terms of your happiness. And, uh, it was true. You know, and and people spend a lot of time chasing happiness in a lot of different ways. I was told in the beginning of recovery, happiness is an inside job. Recovery is an inside job. 
And to me, if I don't have suffering internally, I'm pretty content. And, and, and then, you know, I have these moments where I get to experience joy, but it's not, it's not actually in the external achievements at all. It's really how you feel inside. Mm. I think that was all over the place, but I gave it my best shot. No, wow, it's good. It's really good, man. I really, I like, I like the the two angles of it, and you know, your your practical one, and then your caught more sort of like lived one. It's both super relevant. So yeah, man, thank thank you for sharing, and and thank you again for the time today, and for bringing you know your authentic self to the conversation, and and for sharing and and doing great work in the world, man. I think you know just just your TED talk alone will will change a lot of lives. Um, and you know your teachings and the book and stuff will so yeah appreciate the time thank you thank you and hey dude i can tell you're a genuine dude that genuinely cares and i think that's pretty cool so thank you for making a space like this to help people thank you man and before we sign out officially do you want to let people know where they can keep up to date with you online or find the book or anything else you want to share Uh, about my website is michaelbrodyweight.com um or if you don't want to figure out how to spell brody weight because the first 25 years of my life i got my ass kicked because i had a jacked up last name but the last 17 have been sweet because b-r-o-d-y hyphen w-a-i-t-e is the uh is is a unique search result in google that only (laughs) i have um, so the same reason I got my butt kicked is the same reason why you can find me and that'll help you find my social stuff. You can also get my book, Great Leaders of Lake Drug Addicts. Um, but yeah, just Google Michael Brody Wait, go to michaelbrodyweight.com, pick up the book or uh, just send me a note. Let me know if this impacted you in any way. And I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Thank you, man. So there we have it. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you did like what you heard, then please be sure to leave a review and even better still, hit the subscribe button so that you can get the latest episode straight to your phone. And if you know someone who you think would really benefit from hearing this episode, then be sure to send them the link or a screenshot because it's really important that we continue to spread the positive vibes and messages of episodes like this. I started this podcast to help inspire a positive change and you can be a part of that by sharing this with someone you know today. As ever, you can connect with me on Instagram at I'm Alex Manzi. Hit me up. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Let me know what you learned from this episode, more importantly. I look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for your time, and I will see you for the next episode.